everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. Experts and companies often see alternative dispute resolution as a sensible, cost-effective way to resolve matters out of court. For all of those purported efficiencies for businesses, individual plaintiffs and their families often mistrust ADR and want their day in court. So how do you get these folks to trust the process? And what should attorneys do to effectively navigate ADR and persuade arbitrators and mediators? So to discuss these issues, I'm happy to welcome Ken Nolan to the show. Ken has spent his entire legal career, almost 45 years, at the same New York litigation boutique firm, Spicer Krauss, specializing in aviation and personal injury law. He has represented families in major aviation tragedies, as well as approximately 125 victims of the September 11th terrorist attacks before the Victim Compensation Board, which was established by the federal government to compensate those injured or killed. For most of his career, he has published articles on trial tactics and litigation magazine for the ABA litigation section and is author of A Streetwise Guide to Litigation, which provides a practical approach to life and law involving all aspects of litigation from attracting business to trying a case. Ken, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Dave. Happy to be here. Well, Ken, looking at your bio, I saw that you did a couple of interesting jobs before becoming a lawyer. For example, you taught high school English for five years at a Brooklyn high school. So what was that like, and what did you learn there uh, that you applied to practicing law? Well, that was uh, much more difficult than practicing law, I'll tell you that, Dave. Uh, John J. Hyatt's in Park Slope, which, of course, is now gentrified. But when I taught there, it wasn't gentrified. You had uh, double sessions, so you started at 7.40 in the morning and ended at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. You had a dropout rate of probably a third of the kids. So what you learned was how to interest people who didn't want to be in school. The kids, for the most part, were working class kids in Brooklyn, and they were not educationally oriented. So what I got from that, which was very, very valuable, was how to think on your feet, how to react, how to treat people, some of whom wanted to learn, some of whom didn't want to learn. And you had a mix of them, and sometimes you had 34 of them in, in, in the class, and you had to deal with them, and you had to think on your feet, you had to persuade them. If you think persuading a jury is hard, Believe me, a 16-year-old kid at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a bright, sunny spring day, it's much more difficult. (laughs) And it probably would even be more hard um, considering all of the distractions that kids have these days, phones and the like. And yeah, I'm sure that persuading kids and persuading a jury, there's a lot of um, things that you can learn there. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. I mean, you really have to talk in language they understand. And you have to do that 
whether you're in front of a jury or in front of a mediator, you have to talk in the language they understand. If you talk in uh, Shakespearean language to 16-year-old kids who could who really were two or three years behind in writing and math, you're going to get nowhere. So the first thing you learn is how to communicate. And the way you communicate to whether it's a client, a judge, a mediator, a jury, is to speak in words they understand. Well, speaking of words, I also saw that you worked at the New York Times for a little while. What did you do there? Well, I started out as a copy boy. This was in the medieval medieval times, uh, Dave, when there was no computers and you had to physically take copy from one area of the building to have it printed in lead type and put into a page. And I worked for the editorial department, the, the men, no women at that time, who wrote the editorials that were very influential throughout the world. And they were the most sophisticated and brightest people I've ever met. And here I was, I had never been anywhere, maybe to Maryland to visit my aunt. And they would say, oh, I just came back from London where I spoke with the prime minister. I was just in Washington with the vice president. So what I learned from that that experience, which was really the best education I've ever had, was that you had to be well-rounded. You had to know what was going on, not only on your street, not only in your city, but throughout the world. And they would read magazines and newspapers. They, they read Pravda in Russian, for instance. They read Le Monde in French. So they opened up my world and taught me knowledge is power. And how did that experience uh, affect your legal writing? Because, you know, obviously when you go into law school, you learn a typical format and typical style of writing. And you came to law school with a totally different style of writing. So was it difficult for you to make that transition? And how do you think that impacted sort of your legal writing now? Well, it took time, Dave, obviously. One of the things that I was fortunate that they instituted at the times while I was there was they allowed people to freelance. And then I lived in Brooklyn. And in those days, no one lived in Brooklyn, really. Everybody was Manhattan. It's Today's Brooklyn gentrified and it's a hot place. When I was growing up, it wasn't. It was where working class people were, where you really didn't want to be. So they had very, even though it was the New York Times, they had very few people who actually lived in Brooklyn. So when they had a story in Brooklyn, they would come to me and say, you want to try your hand at writing this? So I wrote for them while I worked as a copy boy. I had 40 articles published, photographs published. And I, you know, you learn that what you write is not sacrosanct because these editors, uh, whether they were experienced for 40 years as an editorial writer on the Times, I would take the copy from one editorial writer to the editor in chief, John Oakes, and I'd bring back uh, the, edit, the edits, and they'd look up at me and said, he didn't even keep one sentence. So you learned that what you wrote was not sacrosanct. And, and to do it well, you had to do it over and over and over again. You had to edit it so that it was clear and understood. So I think that was very valuable whenever I wrote a brief or a motion or things of that nature to present to uh, the court. You had to be succinct 
You had to be clear and you had to tell them what you wanted. And it seems to me in terms of editing, part of what you ha- what you don't have a lot in law practice is a lot of time. You have so many matters that kind of are thrown at you and you don't have a lot of time to edit, or at least you say you don't have a lot of time to edit. So that's just part that just doesn't get done. What were some tactics that maybe you used at the New York Times to find that time for editing? Because I assume the the time constraints are perhaps even worse uh, at, at a paper like the New York Times where you have so many articles that you got to get out even daily. You're absolutely right, Dave. One of the things that I was promoted to was the makeup editor of the editorial and op-ed pages, which meant that I was responsible to make sure those two pages uh, got into the paper without mistakes. And the, the real challenge was one, you had to deal with the union people because the printers, they were union and they didn't like the editorial side and the editorial side were what they weren't crazy about the union people at that time. So first of all, you had to deal with both of them and they were two different worlds. And then you would have a columnist, an op-ed columnist who would send in his, his column and it would be 15 lines long. And you had, it would have to go get put into galleys, sent to you. And you had to get this done in 20 minutes. You didn't have three hours. So you learned to work. I learned to work under intense pressure. And at the same time, you had to deal with the editorial side, these very bright people, most of whom were just lovely. And the printers who didn't care about whether you had a mistake or not. So you learned under pressure, you learned, look, there's, there's, there's no better motivation to get something done was when uh, the editor of the entire paper comes over to you and say, hey, kid, you're holding up the whole blankety blank paper, get your stuff together and get in there in 10 minutes. And you had to do it and you had to do it, Dave, without error. So that was very valuable uh, when I became a lawyer and you had time constraints, you had to get it done and you had to get it done right. Well, let me switch topics a little bit. Um, in your book, A Streetwise Guide to Litigation, you talked about your experience taking clients through the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund, dealing with the special master, Ken Feinberg. Presumably, you were in New York on 9-11. I know you're, it seems like you're a lifelong uh, New Yorker. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience about what happened on 9-11 for you? Sure. That day I had a deposition and I usually drove through the um, Brooklyn Battery Tunnel right at the base of the Trade Center. But I got in there early because I had to prepare for a deposition. Otherwise, I would have been in that uh, in the vicinity of the Trade Center at the time that the first plane struck. Uh, obviously, we initially thought it was just some uh, light plane that uh, had an accident. And we later learned exactly what it was, a terrorist attack, the worst really on our um, land ever. And of course, in my world, I grew up where a lot of my friends became firefighters. Two of their, two of my friends lost their sons. We lost a lot of firefighter friends. And the other area where uh, people like myself that grew up in these ethnic neighborhoods, they went into finance. So we had a lot of people who I knew who worked in finance. 
And when I eventually we had um, one of the attorneys in our office lost her brother-in-law who happened to be at the Windows on the World conference that morning. Um, I lost my 23-year-old cousin who worked for Canna Fitzgerald. And when I came home that evening, we could hear, because it was such a beautiful day and the windows were open, the family right behind us, whose daughter also worked in the windows in the world and was killed. So they started this victim compensation fund and they put Ken Feinberg in charge and it, eventually it became a, a very successful uh, process. Well, tell us a little bit about how that fund worked. Presumably these clients could have went to court to plead their case and instead they, they went through this fund. Tell us a little bit about your experience on exactly how the fund worked. Well, initially, the Congress passed bailout money for the airlines. And then somebody said, what about the families? And they passed this victim compensation fund. And as you, as you said, Dave, the trade-off was uh, you have to issue, avoid litigation in order to enter the fund. And you would get, and they set up, eventually they set up rules. They appointed Ken Feinberg, who was a well-known mediator, and had worked on the Agent Orange case under Judge Jack Weinstein in the Eastern District. So he had a very good reputation. Um, But the families, for the most part, were middle-class, upper-middle-class families. So when Feinberg was first appointed, they would ask questions like, uh, Mr. Feinberg, My husband had a million dollars worth of life insurance. I read in the rules that you're deducting that from my award. Why should you deduct that from my award when we spent our after-tax dollars to take care of our family when if somebody who was earning the exact same amount as my husband would get a million dollars more because the life insurance would not be deducted? And Feinberg, as a mediator, would say, okay, yeah, let me look into that and I'll get back to you in two or three, two weeks. Now, he's used to dealing with lawyers and lawyers, two weeks becomes three weeks, nobody objects. But they would get on his, you know, one minute after midnight, after two weeks, they'd send him, you know, where's my answer? So eventually he, he adapted and he realized that he had to answer these questions as best he, best he could in an honest and forthright fashion, which he did. But no one wanted to enter the fund because they didn't trust the process. They didn't trust the government, which let them down on 9-11. I had a friend who lost his wife, a high school buddy, and he didn't want to sue. And he said to me, Ken, I'm going to go into this fund. And I said, okay. And, and we said to Feinberg, I don't know how it came up, whether the lawyers or whether it was Ken that suggested it. He said, why don't you submit all the papers, all the documents, but don't sign the portion where you give up your right to sue. And my buddy did that. He met with Ken Feinberg, who was terrific. And then we got a letter naming an award which was fair and equitable, which was accepted. So then my client signed the documents, and that's the way we did everything. We would bring people before Ken Feinberg. We would submit the documents. He would give an award if the award was satisfactory, which in almost all instances it would. They would sign the documents and submit them, 
And eventually the his reputation was that he was fair. He took into account all the other issues, the child who has disabilities or the, 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 the woman who was taking care of her mother, things of that nature. So eventually it, it worked, but it took a long time to build the trust that was necessary. Well, take us a little bit into kind of the, the hearing process. Is it something where the, the families would actually testify or was it done through papers? How, how did that work? Yeah, we would, we, would, we would present a brochure and the tax returns, birth certificates, marriage certificates, all the documentary stuff. We'd also present a, a brochure with photographs, sometimes recordings, statements from friends, attesting to the, to the goodness of the person who died. And, and, and Dave, quite frankly, the one tragedy in all this is that 99.9% of the people who died that September were wonderful family people, smart, hardworking, et cetera. So we'd present... Uh, a detailed brochure along with the documentation, as well as highlighting any, um, you know, the, the child has autism. He's helping support his handicapped cousin or, or nephew or whatever it was. And we present that to them. The most important thing was the families wanted to express to someone, and that someone was Ken Feinberg, how they have been affected by this loss. So we would go in and have, it usually took a half hour to an hour where I would sit down with my client and I'd say, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith, please tell Mr. Feinberg about your your son, your husband, your daughter, your wife. And then he would he would have read the materials. He would understand. He'd ask a few questions he he was very good in pointing out, well, I could see, you know, he's a firefighter, but he had this uh, carpentry business on the side. Would your husband have gone into that full time after he retired? And, yes, of course. He had a good business. He worked weekends. You know, well, we had two kids in college, so he did very well. We, he had to work. And, and eventually, you know, a week or so, we get a letter saying if – you sign, if you enter the program, you would receive this amount of money. So it was very, very successful, both from the financial point of view, but more importantly, from the emotional point of view, because it gave the families the ability to be heard by, quote unquote, the government. You know, Ken, it occurs to me, you know, this was before the age of where people were really thinking about mental health care and self-care and that sort of thing. And you as an attorney, you're dealing with not only kind of the, the larger tragedy of 9-11, and then you're also taking these 125 clients individually and helping them through this process. What did you do in terms of, or how did you, how did you cope going through not only kind of the tragedy, but then the individual tragedies as you heard these families and helped these families through what I'm sure was just a gut-wrenching experience. It was it was terrible. Now, I did have experience in that we did aviation. So I was kind of used to dealing with tragedies in that sense. We would represent people out of the Pan Am Lockerbie crash and all the other major air disasters. 
So I would, I I had that experience of dealing with it, but it was very, very, very difficult. And it's, it, it, it doesn't go away. I mean, in the neighborhood I live in, you can't walk three blocks without seeing a sign for the uh, police officer Morris Smith Memorial Way or Gus Economides Memorial Way. And it's uh, all over. I mean, it's coming up in three days and, and it's just terrible. And it was very, very difficult for us, not only because we had a family member, but we knew so many people, so many good people, young people. And, and I'm still friends with the two firefighters who lost their son, one of whom was a CPA. And he gave that up to enter the fire department because it's that, that whole um, department is, is, not, is not just a, a place you work. It's a career. It's a vocation for a lot of people. So it was very difficult for me and my family. And quite frankly, I don't know that I've ever handled it that well. Hmm. Well, I think... You know, for for me, I, I have kids who are, you know, 18 and, and 16. They look at it as a, you know, historical event um, where, you know, we're dealing with kind of it as a, a personal event. And, and you even more, you know, living in New York, you know, at the time, I, I just can't imagine. But let's switch gears a little bit and get more into sort of the practical tips for our listeners. Um, it really seems like having Ken Feinberg as a special master was a key component to making the 9-11 fund work and getting the families to trust the process and accepting the settlement awards. So speaking of, you know, having a mediator or somebody who you're choosing to take the case, what do you look for in a mediator or an arbitrator, you know, when you're doing these cases? Well, first of all, you look for intelligence. You want someone with experience. You look with someone who has a good way with people. Not all judges or retired judges or mediators have a good way with people. You want someone who's professional. You want someone who's patient because you need Patience. The one thing that Ken Feinberg taught me was you have to be patient. You can't walk out of the room if you don't get your number on the first go around. Uh, and of course, you also have to be optimistic. You have to be optimistic if you're a mediator. And if you're going into mediation with Ken Feinberg or someone you've never met, you should do your research and find out what type of mediator is that person. And then just so you're aware, you're prepared, you can prepare your client. Is it someone who has a lot of experience or is it someone who doesn't have a lot of, do they have time? Is it an hour? Is it three hours? Uh, Do they have you come back six or seven times or do they give up quite quickly? So you, you want someone who's flexible, who's optimistic, who's intelligent, courteous, you know, the whole Boy Scout thing. And you mentioned for the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund that you would put together these uh, brochures and, and photographs and that sort of thing. And it occurs to me that you know, oftentimes, oftentimes when we put together uh, initial mediation submissions, for example, they can be kind of dry. Um, they can you know, have some facts and we talk about the law and we talk about the demand and that sort of thing, but there's not, not a lot of personality 
um, or personal things that get put into these submissions, at least from, you know, from what I've seen in my practice. So what tips do you have in terms of, you know, initial mediation submissions? What's, what's your philosophy for putting one together? Well, uh, that's a very good question, Dave. What I try and do is educate. And, and I mean that even with an experienced mediator. I'm not assuming that they know if it's a medical case, what they understand. They may, oh, yeah, it's an ACL tear or it's a, you know, a, a back problem. I would provide def- medical definitions, medical drawings, illustrations, so they understand the medicine. If it's a product liability case, so they understand the product. I would try and educate them initially on the facts of the case. And then, you know, you have to also discuss the law, what law applies, what's the damage law, what's the venue, all of that. And then I would try and provide either through a written statement by one of the, by the plaintiff or the defendant or one, the person being accused or the person who is accusing a statement, and obviously this is prepared in advance, reviewed by the attorney to make sure nothing untoward is said, to give it a little uh, personal flavor because you want to, I mean, the mediator is objective, no question about it, but they take sides. And if you can get to their heartstrings and say, look, this is a real solid liability case with significant injuries, they're going to push a little more the defendant to to, um, uh, put in a a few more dollars. And if it's a a situation where it's not a significant claim and you're the represented defendant, you want to tell them that, that there are people out there who have significant issues like this, but this isn't one of them. Got it. And what other tips do you have for having a successful mediation from your client? I I know a lot of people have questions about negotiation strategies, for example. Uh, But yeah, what other tips might you have for us today? Well, the first thing I always did was prepare the client. If most of the time the mediators want the client available, sometimes in the room, sometimes not in the room. So you have to prepare the client for what it is because they don't know. And sometimes the other attorney will start yelling and screaming, oh, this is a phony case, you don't have any injuries, blah, 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 blah. And, and you, you don't want your client to get upset. You don't want your client to react. So you, you want to educate your client as to the process. And then you want to sit down with your client and formulate a negotiating strategy. If they say X, what do we say? If they say Y, what do we say? Do we continue with this? Do we go home? What do we do? And and the one thing you want to always do when you're in mediation is remain flexible. Obviously, there's a line in the sand where you walk away and say, we'll see you at trial. But you, you and I know, Dave, that mediation is is the future of litigation. It's obligated in many courthouses throughout the country, and not only one, but two. So you you wanna prepare the client, you wanna be prepared, you wanna have terrific written material, whether the mediator has the time to read it or not, and and you wanna remain calm, courteous, and professional. Anybody can scream and yell and slam a door, but that makes you feel good for 15 seconds, but it doesn't settle the case. And if your goal is to settle the case, 
You have to ignore the, the, the outbursts and things of that nature and remain focused on your goal, which is to settle the case. If it can't be settled, you go try it. But at least you've given it a shot. Well, Ken, we're, we are nearing the end of our time together and wanted to hear any final thoughts you might have. But before doing so, I wanted to remind our listeners that if you're interested in reading Ken's book, A Streetwise Guide to Litigation, or perhaps purchasing one for a colleague or the young lawyers in your lives, uh, folks can go to ambar.org slash litigation and click on that publications tab where you can find information on the book sold by the section. And don't forget that members of the litigation section save 20% on all section published books, which of course includes A Streetwise Guide to Litigation. Um, so Ken, do you have any sort of final thoughts for our listeners today? Sure, Dave. I think I think in mediation, as in everything really in law, you have to be practical. You have to look at your um, advantages, your strong points, as well as your weaknesses. You had, Don't be afraid in mediation to point out your weaknesses. Yes, that's true, but yes, the law says that, but, and uh, that will add credibility, uh, whether it's in front of a judge or jury or a mediator. So I think if you're a professional, if you're courteous, if you're well-prepared, and if you're demands are not unreasonable, you'll, you'll be very successful. You won't always settle the cases. Not all cases can be settled, but at least you'll know that now we have to try the case or now the case can be settled. Well, terrific. Ken Nolan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate your perspective. Thank you, Dave. It's, it's been a pleasure. Well, I'm happy today to introduce a new segment on the show from the ABA Litigation Section's Mental Health and Wellness Task Force, which is committed to educating lawyers on mental health and wellness issues, resources and opportunities, destigmatizing mental health and wellness needs, recognizing that seeking help is an act of strength, supporting attorneys struggling with these issues, acknowledging that sometimes the profession itself is a source of mental health and wellness challenges and promoting better ways the profession can address these issues. You can find out more about the Mental Health and Wellness Task Force at www.americanbar.org slash groups slash litigation slash committees slash mental dash health dash wellness. And our first step comes from task force member Haley Maple, who is a shareholder at Cat Siegel and Maple in Tampa Bay, Florida, where she practices construction law. Welcome to the show, Haley. Thanks for having me. Well, what's your tip for today? My tip for today deals with addressing difficult times when you're practicing law. And I'd like to start with a trigger warning that what I'm going to talk about today involves the loss of a parent. Practicing law is a stressful job. It's hard, it's demanding, and frequently our time doesn't always belong to us. Our time is often subject to the demands and needs of our clients, our colleagues, and the court system, as well as the deadlines that we're required to comply with as set forth in our local rules of civil procedure. All of that is important. Everything we do when litigating is serious and deadlines have to be complied with. That's all true until we are hit with something so traumatic that our world literally stops spinning. Sadly, this summer, I experienced that firsthand when I unexpectedly lost my mother. I learned a lot from that experience. And while I don't hope that anyone listening ever experiences any type of trauma, 
And for purposes today, the trauma of losing a parent, I do want to share what helped me get through and what I learned through the process. First, it's important to have people in your corner. I was able to contact my partner and tell him what happened the day that it happened. And he instantly took over the job of delegating, canceling, arranging coverage for everything I had on my calendar the week following her death. I was surprised and unprepared for just how much work is associated with making the arrangements for the funeral and going through my mother's things. Making arrangements took a full week and I would not have been able to work that week at all because the time commitment was just so strong. Luckily, due to the support of my colleagues, I was able to take a second week off as well. And the third week after my mother passed away, I started back at a part-time basis. If you're able to do that, I would strongly recommend doing so. The important takeaway for me after my mother passed away is that we are all humans first. And because we are all humans, we all understand the tremendous loss that comes with losing a parent. While this may seem obvious, it's easy to forget when you're the person who has lost someone. And as I started to transition back to work, I realized that my memory was not quite up to par. I thought I was okay to come back, and I was okay, but I didn't remember doing certain things. And I understand now that that's part of going through a trauma experience. For that reason, I strongly recommend that you make a list of everything that you're doing, whether that's a simple update to a client or delegating a discovery response to a colleague. Cross off things as you do them because you may be surprised to realize that you've done things, but you don't necessarily remember doing them. And the list helps you keep track of all of that. Additionally, when you come back to work, When you are feeling upset, take a break and don't take a phone call and don't send emails. You may end up taking out some of your upset on the person on the receiving end of your communications. An important thing to remember when you come back is that your sleep patterns will likely be off. This is also a result of the trauma. You may need to sleep more at weird times and you may have trouble sleeping at night. Once again, this impacts your memory and is something that you need to just let happen. You need to let your body tell you what your body needs. Give yourself grace. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to be upset at the office and it's okay to be upset at home. You just experienced a tremendous loss and you need to give yourself a pass on having trouble concentrating or any of the other things that come with a large loss. Seek help, whether that's from a friend, a professional, clergy, or a colleague. You'll want support. Don't do this alone. You're not in this alone. A friend can text you every day and just touch base to see how you're doing. If you're a solo practitioner, you should go ahead and have someone lined up who can step in in case of an emergency, no matter what that emergency is. But if you do experience a loss like this, then your designated person will be able to help you out in terms of arranging coverage for hearings, depositions, or canceling those things if possible. 
don't sweat the small stuff, and don't get wrapped up in things that really are non-issues at the end of the day. Focus on what really matters in your cases and in your personal life. Extend that same grace to your staff or to opposing counsel when they also experience a loss. Giving an extension is likely not the end of the world, especially when someone is going through something so difficult. Again, we are humans first. I'll end by stating something my mom always said to me, and that was that my heart is with you even when I'm not. And I have found that to be true through her loss. And while working through grief, I've learned so much about what is important in practicing law and how to manage difficult situations. Well, Haley, thank you so much for sharing your personal experience of grief and your tips for dealing with loss. We so appreciate you uh, being on the show today. Thank you very much. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or questions you'd like me to answer on an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung, without the hyphen, at gmail.com, and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at our next litigation section event. So please make plans to join us at the 2022 Professional Success Summit in Los Angeles, October 26th through the 28th. This is a great conference and CLE event dedicated to maximizing the potential of litigators from racial and ethnic backgrounds that have traditionally been underrepresented in the legal profession. To find out more and for registration information, go to ambar.org slash PSS. And if you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating over at Spotify Podcasts is super helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make the show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio contact committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Next time.